everyone up for something new this morning? Yeah. Excellent. Well, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5, verse 1. It says this. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Genesaret, everyone say Galilee. Galilee. It's the same place. Um, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. See, Jesus was exciting and interesting. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon. Everyone say Simon. And asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So that they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and both um, and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. Everyone say, that's a lot of fish. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. Everyone say astonished. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, everyone say Simon. Simon. Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore and left everything. Everyone say everything. everything. And they followed him. So we have here the gospel writer Luke recording how a fisherman called Simon became a student of this new rabbi from Nazareth. It seems from what we can find out elsewhere that Simon knew something of John the Baptist, he knew something of his teaching, and had also met Jesus previously. He hadn't followed him, but he met him and knew about him. And now he meets Jesus again, and everything changes. Simon moves from being a spectator to someone that becomes a disciple. Everyone say disciple. And he has this fascinating preparedness to leave everything in pursuit of this new teacher. And he's the first. He's among the very first of the disciples. Jesus wasn't surrounded by a big crowd of people that are all saying that he was the Messiah. People were interested in what he had to say, but no one had committed their lives to pursuing his teaching. Simon becomes one of the very first to say, I think this guy um, is bringing something new and something of incredible importance. And this drama that we find right at the beginning of Jesus and Simon's uh, relationship, it carries on throughout Simon's life. I have loved this next bit. Um, Because you see, Peter is a passionate guy and he um, is has a appetite for truth life 
and love. And he's also really good at failing as well. And so he has this incredible life that just jumps out the pages. I'm not sure there is anyone that uh, you will remember quite as well from the Gospels as Peter uh, comes out in life through them. In John chapter 1, Jesus meets Peter and he recasts his entire future by saying, you are called Simon, but I'm going to call you Peter. And uh, uh, Peter, or the Aramaic Cephas, means rock. Everyone say rock. As you get to know Peter through the Gospels, you will know that he is very unrock-like. And yet Jesus pronounces right at the beginning, you're going to be rock-like. And everyone that knows him is like, yeah, you've given the wrong name to the wrong person, buddy. In Matthew chapter 14, it is this guy called Simon who sees Jesus walk on water. And most of us would have been like, wow, that's pretty impressive, Jesus. You must be someone of a, uh, of a remarkable, remaculous uh, lineage. Peter sees Jesus walk on water and decides that he wants to have a go on it too. Not only does he get out of the boat, not only does he start walking on water, but then he looks at the wind and the waves and he doubts and he starts to sink and then Jesus rescues him. It is a very dramatic thing. Those disciples would have remembered that for the rest of their life. Who else stepped out from the boat? Not many people. And so Peter had this extraordinary hunger and thirst for life and for Jesus and for miracles and for the kingdom of God. Um, that he reaches these peaks of walking on water and then he hits this low as he sinks underneath the waves crying for help. He is a fascinating character. He is mortal man kind of summed up in many ways. In John chapter 6... Jesus is teaching, and, and he's teaching about sort of communion and, and sort of uh, e eating his flesh for salvation. And people are just leaving Jesus in droves. They cannot stand what Jesus has to say. It is too much. What Jesus is asking is too big a thing. And so people leave. And Jesus turns to Simon Peter, or Cephas as you will le learn to uh, know him as. And he says, aren't you going to go too? And Peter goes, I don't know where else to go. I, d I don't think anyone else has got the words of everlasting life that you have. And Peter has this understanding that Jesus is not just a wise man or a guru. He is more than that. In Matthew chapter 16, Peter gives us a very clear pronouncement of who he thinks Jesus is. He says, you know what, you are the anointed one, you are the Messiah, you are the son of the living God. And Peter gets this insight that it seems very few other people got. So he's walked on water, so he's refused to turn his back on Jesus when everyone else ran away. And now he's saying that this Jesus is the son of the living God. This guy is a good church leader. You know, he's, he's coming through nicely. 
In John chapter 18, they come to arrest Jesus. And um, Jesus had said this was coming, and he'd said that he was going to die. And Peter wasn't having any of it. And he grabs a sword, and he cuts off the ear of one of the servants that had come to arrest Jesus. And you can sense this boiling passion in this man that loves his Messiah so much that he will resort to violence to protect him. Now, in church history, we've realized that 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 was a bad move. But, you know, don't we have sympathy for the action of someone that wants to save Jesus? When someone um, curses Jesus, when someone uh, comes against stuff we believe, we want to go, that's wrong. And, And we want to establish the truth and 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 i have sympathy with peter who then sort of uh resorted to violence because he didn't really know what else to do in 1 corinthians 15 the great apostle paul whose words fill your new testament whose words fill books of theologians through the ages whose long sentences will confuse you and sometimes make you wish that the Bible was a little simpler and that uh, we just use kids' Bibles rather uh, than this scripture. But Paul says that Peter was the, like the first guy to see the resurrected Jesus. That primacy is interesting. And this guy, Peter, is never never portrayed one-dimensionally. You are never given someone like... So Daniel, never a bad word is said about Daniel. He is always on the up and up, always perfect. Peter, on the other hand, is a very different kettle of fish. You know, that slicing off of the ear gives you a hint of the type of character he is. Um, In the same chapter that Peter says, oh, you know what, Jesus, I I, I think you're the Christ, the son of the living God, um, Peter lays into Jesus and corrects him for saying, you're going to suffer and die. And Peter says, not on my watch, buster. And not only does uh, Jesus say, you're wrong, uh, but he lays into him and sort of rebukes Satan. This is one of Peter's low points. You know, he reaches some highs with the walking on water and the confession of Christ. But this is a low point. When you are rebuked by the son of the living God as Satan and a hindrance, you're like, okay, that that is something that I'm going to quick to forget. In Mark chapter 9, we are uh, given this story of the transfiguration where Jesus got to the mountainside and suddenly the disciples get to see uh, the glory of Jesus. And what is Peter's response? What high and lofty words of wisdom and insight does he get? Well, Mark tells us that Peter prattles on because he doesn't know what what is going on and how to respond. And he ends up not knowing what he's saying and says, let's build some tents here when he sees the glory of Jesus and the Old Testament prophets. Again, this is a low point. This is Peter, the mortal man who gets things wrong. That makes all of us go, oh, I'm glad there's someone else that can put their foot in it as well. In John 13, Jesus is washing feet. 
And he's trying to show them humility and the kind of king he is, this servant king who, who looks to look for the welfare of everyone else. And Peter doesn't just miss the point once, but he does it twice. And it's recorded there in black and white if you want to go and look at it. In Mark chapter 14, this is my favorite failure of Peter. They go into Jesus' favorite garden. It seems that Jesus loved to go to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. He was deeply troubled uh, about the coming uh, arrest and like fake trial and crucifixion. Quite understandably, he was uh, uh, a little worried. And he takes kind of his his inner circle with him into his favorite garden to pray and seek God's face. Peter fails to grasp the gravity of the situation and falls asleep three times after Jesus keeps waking him up. And those of you that have ever fallen asleep in a sermon or a prayer meeting or a house group, you can feel a sense of you're in good company. In John 18... After Jesus is arrested, Peter denies having anything to do with this person that he would cut a person's ear off for. Not once, not twice, but three times. And that is kind of the worst, okay? Denying Christ is something that Christ said is not good. Jesus says, if you deny me before men, I I will kind of put you at arm's length. And here we have Peter doing this very thing. Peter is kind of um, looking for a curse here from God by denying Christ. We have here a man of incredible faith and terrible doubt. And I think it's one that we should all be able to relate to. He is the most human of all the disciples, the one that most colourful, the one that uh, brings a smile to a congregation. It is really easy to talk about Peter and get people laugh in the congregation because he's such an interesting, complicated, fallible man. Those of us that whose sort of stories of faith just seems to be one failure after another, Peter looks you straight in the eye and goes, mate, there's hope. You know, it's not the end of the world. Whatever you get up to, you deny Christ three times, there is a way back. And lots of us go, well, thanks, Pete. I'm glad you went there first. And so uh, uh, I can be encouraged. And Peter also excites the mature believer that anything is possible. Peter walked on water. Peter saw miracles happen. And there is that encouragement that however far along with Christ you are, you can look forward to Jesus working through you in supernatural ways. Is everyone with me so far? Excellent, excellent. So I really enjoy just going through his highs and lows and just um, bringing out this character, Peter. He's someone that's always there and we always have a little chuckle when we come across him. Um, And and that's kind of a a quick summary of his life in the Gospels. As we take in Peter's full story, there is something fascinating that emerges in the Gospels and Paul's letters. How many disciples were there originally? 
It's not a trick question. There are 12 disciples, okay? And those 12 disciples, their names are listed here and there. Do you know whose name is put at the beginning of the list every single time without exception? Peter. Good guess. Peter is always mentioned first at every list of the 12 disciples. It is fascinating. If you are picking the kind of first one, I'm not too sure that you would pick the one that kind of sunk beneath the waves, that denied Christ three times and that fell asleep too many times in the garden. Perhaps you would pick someone that there is perhaps little less known about and is a, a little less of a figurehead um, for failure. But Peter is always mentioned first. John, it seems, was Jesus' closest mate. And you would have thought, well, you know, perhaps John would get the significance. But no, it is Peter that's given the primacy in these lists. Turn with me to John chapter 21. So how many times did Jesus, did, um, Peter deny Jesus? Three times. Three times, excellent. Keep that in mind. And it says this in John chapter 21, verse 15. When they had finished scoffing their faces, I mean eating, uh, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, so the second time, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter answered, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, conveniently forgetting that he denied Jesus three times uh, a little earlier. Um, Peter was hurt. Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Everyone say, feed my sheep. Peter's got this wonderful catalogue of highs and lows. He's got some real doozies of failures in his history. He has got some outrageous cowardice that, is uh, in his psyche. But Jesus takes this freak and he restores him. Jesus takes this guy of all the 12, though to be fair, you know, G Judas had like betrayed him and then killed himself. So out of the 11 uh, now, um, Peter uh, is chosen out of these. And Peter it seems to be given some sort of primacy. It's, it's almost as if Jesus says this to Peter, but less so to the other ones. And, and John, who is not slow to put the boot in to Peter in his gospel, and you'll find it if you read it, John goes, you, you know what, this happened too. This happened 
Despite all Peter's failures, Jesus restores him. And it seems that he had peculiar responsibility for nurturing God's people. And you're like, well, I'm not too sure it's as explicit as you say, Kevin. I'm not really sure that anyone would be stupid enough to lay any sort of responsibility on this fisherman's shoulders. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. So it says this in Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Um, and that's, what, uh, that's the phenomenon that uh, we enjoyed hearing about of someone that we know on Christmas Eve. And uh, if you were there uh, on meeting on Christmas Day, you'll have heard that great story. But, so, but the first time that falling of the Holy Spirit happened um, is recorded in Acts 2. And you're like, okay, this is weird. So there's some wind and there's some fire and there are people speaking what sounds like gibberish to other people. Um, what are we going to do with that? Well, I'll tell you. Turn to verse 14. It says this. Then Peter, everyone say Peter. Peter. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice without the need of PA or microphone or anything else, and he addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. And you can see the disciples, the other 11, going, really, should we let this guy lead the way? This is an incredibly pivotal moment in the church. The Holy Spirit has fallen. It sounds like there's gibberish and there's wind and there's fire. Should really this very um, fallible fisherman be our spokesman? But Peter is not listening to their doubts. And he goes on, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. You can see him grow a few inches in stature as he hits his stride. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And then Peter unleashes a sermon uh, that will just warm your heart and uh, set you ablaze. It's an absolute fantastic review of all God's work through the ages. And the 11 uh, and the 10 that were kind of behind Peter probably thought, he's done all right, actually. You know, perhaps Jesus was right in giving him that sense of primacy amongst us. And so Peter preaches. 3,000 go, you know what, Peter, I think you're right. And they get baptised. And then the church grows exponentially with healings and miracles and worship services and uh, attention to what the apostles preach. And it just grows incredibly. And Peter seems to have been the man that sort of facilitated. He was kind of like the midwife to this birth of the Christian church through his sermon. In Acts 3... Peter performs a great miracle and he preaches again and he gets arrested and then he gets released and then he returns to this prayer meeting and the Holy Spirit comes down on that prayer meeting and shakes it. 
And that is where we draw the hope of this church of seeing his spirit shake Newbridge. Peter comes back from this sort of uh, bad arrest and they pray and they long for God's kingdom to just blow out the windows uh, of their communities and the spirit just comes and blows amongst them and they get all very excited. And, and, and that's kind of our ambition and hope for Bubrish is that God will just blow out the windows of this place and uh, uh, captivate it with himself because uh, there's no one quite like the Holy Spirit uh, to transform life. Anyone agree? Excellent. In Acts 5, we get these double-minded, deceitful couple who try and give the church a little bit less than they said they were going to. Peter promptly proclaims judgment on them and they both die. And everyone's like, whoa, man, this is a fisherman and now he's doing some crazy stuff. And uh, suddenly Peter's profile gets accelerated. Suddenly he's a little bit more than a fisherman now. Suddenly that memory of him denying Christ three times is probably forgotten because he's doing some pretty super stuff for Jesus and some scary stuff as well. And so Peter preaches and preaches and preaches and he heals and he leads and there's people who his his shadow seems to fall on and he gets healed. And you're like, okay, this is a whole new level. I don't remember Jesus' shadow falling on anyone and getting healed. But Peter's shadow falls and people are like, minds are blown. And he makes some good decisions and he makes some good judgments. And the spirit just seems to be in everything he does. And we're all like, way to go, fallible mortal guy who denied Jesus and fell asleep three times. That's what we're liking and enjoying. And you're all like, well, that's a pretty big contribution. You know what, if I could do anything like that, I think um, I'd be happy with that. But it seems, and I don't think I really took this in, but it seems that scholars suggest that Peter's biggest contribution to church, Christianity, and our faith happens in Acts chapter 10. He receives this divine revelation from God. And you can read about it there. I'm not going to go through it, the intricacies of it. And this Gentile receives a divine revelation from God. And they come together and Peter preaches. And he preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and, and how Jesus died and rose again and that if you trust in him, you can have everlasting life. And these Gentiles, these non-Jews, these people that were outside of that old covenant, they said, we, we believe in this Jesus. And then the spirit that had fallen at that prayer meeting in Acts chapter 4 the spirit that had fallen in Acts chapter 2 and then Peter made this great proclamation and 3,000 were converted and were baptised. The same spirit falls on these Gentiles and all the Jews get really, really uncomfortable because they thought the Jews were the chosen people and that the church was kind of an extension of this. This was kind of like a, a, a new era in Jewish history. And it seems that that was kind of the the general opinion, like the the salvation was kind of restricted to these uh, uh, Jewish guys. 
And then this happens. And the Jews don't really know what to do with it. They're like, do we have to make them Jews now? Do we have to circumcise them? Do we have to initiate them into all the Pentateuch and the Septuagint and all the sort of Old Testament paraphernalia? And Peter, who is a good Jew, who knows what it is to be a Jew, and was quite happy being a Jew, to be fair, gets this revelation from God that they're not to make these new Gentiles Jews. They're not to initiate them into the old religion. They get to follow Jesus as Gentiles without adopting all that Old Testament stuff. And suddenly, church, Christianity, this following of Jesus, this people of the way, get utterly transformed from being a Jewish sect to being a community of believers that will just uh, spread throughout the world and become a global phenomenon. Who would have thought, I'm not sure Peter even knew where England was uh, when uh, uh, he was around. But the decision that he made on the church council that they were not to make the Gentiles into Jews, that they were not to force them into the Old Testament thing, that they were to embrace them as Gentile believers and follow Christ, it transformed everything. And suddenly the Christian church was no longer a Jewish sect, but it was a community of believers that could accept people from every background. Everyone say hallelujah. Because we don't have to sacrifice animals. You don't have to look and uh, uh, behave in a certain way. You can be a chav and a Christian, which is absolutely miraculous. You can be from Crawley and a Christian. You can be, uh, um, you can be of any background and still be a Christian. You don't have to be Jewish. And it means you get invited into the centre and this is a wonderful truth. And this is something that Peter took hold of. And he was prepared to abandon all those Old Testament Jewish precepts for these new Gentile Christians. And said, you know, in 2,000 years, so that Kevin and Ruth and Rachel, they don't have to follow the Old Testament stuff. They can just be believers in Christ. And... Um, that is a good thing. If you know anything about Old Testament rules and regulations, you got it. You got off lightly, okay. And uh, so there, there should be a few hallelujahs in your heart from uh, uh, from what Peter did and the uh, pivotal thing he he did in the that sort of church council. So that that's possibly his biggest contribution. If you've got a Bible, just turn to Galatians two. Um, I love this. If you know anything about the Apostle Paul, you know he's crazily intelligent. He, um, he's quite sort of, um, does his own thing. You know, if he thinks you, you're wrong, he's going to tell you. Um, and he's quite happy to go out on his own on a limb with little support. He doesn't need to be ordained by anyone. He just does his own thing. Um, and I, so, I, so Paul's this crazy intelligent Jew of Jews. Um, and he says this in Galatians chapter 2. After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem 
This time with Barnabas, I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders. And uh, so he's talking, uh, well, you'll find out who he's talking about. Um, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. Listen to this bit. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Paul had been following Jesus for 14 years, and then Jesus says to him, you know what, you just, just go and check yourself with the church in Jerusalem, that hub of the Christian faith. And then it goes on in uh, verse 4. Um, and so as for those who are held in high esteem... Whatever they were makes no difference to me. You can hear he's sort of, uh, he doesn't like doing what other people says. He's, he's his own master and uh, commander. Uh, God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. Um, on the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching uh, the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, were also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John. And Cephas is? Peter. Peter. So Cephas is the Aramaic for Peter. So sometimes you see him called Simon, sometimes you see him called Peter, and sometimes you'll call him called Cephas. And it's all the same guy. So James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars. Can you imagine the guy that denied Christ three times being called by the high and lofty Apostle Paul who went to the four corners of the earth and preached the gospel, who gave us the book of Romans, which is incredibly complicated, but wonderfully freeing as a truth. Him saying that this fisherman was a pillar of the church. That is the transformation that has happened. So James, Cephas and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. Then they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and, um, and they to the circumcised. So they were really happy that Paul was going to preach to people that weren't Jews, the gospel of Jesus. And you're like, okay, so what little rules is Peter going to slip in there? He's a Jew and he's got all this control. What's he going to get Paul to do? You know, he has this moment of, I'm a pillar of the church. Paul has come to him. Jesus has told him to do so. What's he going to say? And he says this. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing that I had been eager to do. Of all the things Peter said was, just remember the poor. And you're like, oh, what a great guy. No rules, no regulations. No, your church meeting has to happen at 10.30. No communion has to happen every week or once a month. No, uh, make sure you sing Four Hill song songs and then have a sermon no, make sure your Sunday school is four hours long or that you have tea and coffee using fair trade stuff. He, Peter just says, remember the poor. And you're like, I quite like this, Peter. I, I'm quite glad he's in charge. If, if that's all he says to Paul, then I'm, on, I'm with him. And so we find even Paul submitting to Peter's authority. Now, Paul also challenges Peter and puts the boot in when Peter gets it wrong, um, but we're not going to dwell on that this morning. So if we've taken this whirlwind tour of Peter's life and leadership, I hope we can really see his absolute importance to our faith and church history. He just has so much of a part to play in the Gospels 
and in acts and in the nature and uh, structure of church life. But his legacy goes beyond just his mistakes and his successes and it goes beyond just giving direction to that first century church. Mark's gospel, second one in. It is widely regarded that Peter is Mark's source for it. Um, if you've ever read it, you will know that it's very short and everything happens quickly and now and then all of a sudden and there is a rhythm uh, to it that I really enjoy and um, it's widely regarded that, that that was Peter and he helped uh, Mark craft that gospel and it's Peter's influence on it that, that, that saw it accepted um, into the canon of scripture. Um, now, near the end of your New Testaments, you will also find two books named after him. They're named 1 Peter and 2 Peter. Very imaginative. Yeah? Um, and it seems quite clear that he wrote those letters. Scholars have argued a lot about lots of the other books and who they were written by because it's not always clear. But it is widely held that First and Second Peter can be traced back to this pillar of the church and this guy that kept falling asleep in Gethsemane. So taking into account his character, taking into his account his prominence in Christianity, it seemed worthwhile to me for us to spend a little time in the book of 1 Peter to find and look at his actual words that he has to offer to feed the sheep of Jesus. You know, Jesus told him, feed my sheep. And we have the words that he used in 1 and 2 Peter to feed the flock of God. He wasn't the epic historian that Luke was, and he wasn't the wordsmith that the Apostle Paul was. But Peter does seem to have an importance that it seems to me worthwhile to have a look at the letter he wrote. His letter, interestingly, is not to Jews, but to Gentiles. And, and we'll look at this a little bit more over the weeks to come. His letter, it seemed, was to circulate uh, amongst modern day, uh, by cities in modern day Turkey. And it seems that the people he wrote to, they weren't necessarily subject to sort of violent physical persecution, but they were getting it in the neck from the culture and the communities around them. They weren't embraced as truth by the, the people living around them. And so Peter had words to offer these Christians who were Gentiles living in places that didn't say, great, you're a Christian, let me hear all you have to say about Jesus because I really need to know. And I don't know whether that resonates with you, but that, that resonates exactly with how I am received in Crawley and at work and at my street. 
No one says, great, you're a Christian, tell me more about Jesus. They're like, oh, you're one of those. I had a conversation only this week um, with someone who, um, who was saying, oh, these people were terribly religious. Oh, they brought them up at church and basically saying what hypocrites these people were. And there is a climate of generally of suspicion and uh, um, frowning and judgment. And Peter is writing to people perhaps in a similar situation. And this guy that falls asleep three times and walks on water has something to say. And I thought, you know what, wouldn't it be nice to hear what he had to say? And so they're asking, what, what should we believe in this climate? How do we act with our neighbours and our friends? And in this place where no one wants to hear the name of Jesus, is there a way to progress the kingdom of God? We sang about it of our first song, Build Your Kingdom Here, Take This Nation Back. And we're often too scared even to talk to our neighbours. And we have far too many empty chairs here, don't we? Peter tackles all these first century worries and the church and Christ and the Holy Spirit has seen fit to keep his words going for over 2,000 years. But, and Peter comes in, on in his own unique way and you, you'll hopefully you'll hear his own peculiar voice in the letter as we go on. This ex-fisherman he uses very dramatic language. He has a sense of urgency that you don't quite get with some of the other writers. And he has this commanding authority that just smells of this man that explains Pentecost for the entire Jewish nation, um, that saw the wind of God move through a prayer meeting, that healed uh, people whose very shadow seemed to change people's physical situation. And I think his words are important, and I think his words are helpful. And that is what we're going to look at um, for the next month, six months, nine years. I've got no idea. Um, in Psalms, I kind of tried to do a psalm in a sermon. Um, but we might spend, like, months on a phrase, or we could spend uh, uh, one week on an entire chapter. I've got no idea but I know that Peter doesn't mince his words and that I believe that just as he was spirit inspired that his words are to us too um, and that it reaches us and that it's going to do us good is that all right yes. I realize it's only an introduction and that and the, um, it's only a start but the idea was to whet your appetite and perhaps one of you two might even peek a look at one Peter in preparation and go, well, what is this Kevin sort of uh, uh, creating this uh, whirlwind for? Please bow your heads and I'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your provision in Peter's life. Lord God, we thank you that he is um, just this incredibly human character that it is very easy to relate to. Lord God, we thank you that you took him as Simon and made him Cephas. You made him a rock. And uh, Heavenly Father, I pray that each one of us uh, would know that transformation, that we would go from doubter and wave sinker to 
uh, wave rider and shadow thrower. Uh, Lord God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.